Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. I am so lucky to have a job I love. I work from home and I'm my own boss. I get to interview interesting, inspiring people for the podcast and write stories for the Catching Health blog, stories that have the potential to change people's lives. But I also know what it's like to be in a job that makes you so unhappy, you almost feel paralyzed. It happened to me. And although my head kept telling me to keep trying to work things out, my heart and my soul were suffering. My performance suffered too, at work and at home. I felt like a zombie. I finally gave my notice and I embarked on the path I'm now on. It was a struggle to get things going and to finally earn an income, but I was passionate about what I was doing. I still am and I kept at it. It's the best thing I ever did. Nicholas Lohr spent years suffering in a job that didn't work for him. What did he do about that? Well, he decided to help people who were in the same boat. He founded Rockport Institute, which has helped thousands of people find new careers, and he wrote two books, Pathfinder and Now What? The Young Person's Guide to Choosing the Perfect Career. You are a success story, Nick. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, Diane. I'm very happy to be here. So do you consider yourself a success story? Oh, absolutely. I spent years doing things I didn't like very much, and now I am delighted with what I do. I've been doing this since 1981, and I'm still passionate and excited and having fun most of the time. So how did you discover what it was you really wanted to do? Well, I, uh, I I had studied what they now call positive psychology many, many years ago, back when TVs were all kerosene-powered, <laughs> and um, I there, there weren't any jobs in positive psychology because it didn't exist yet. It was my interest, but psychology was all about what's wrong, what's normal, and how do you fix it. So I ended up taking jobs, and I ended up running people's companies and would last about two years and then I would just be bored out of my mind. And this happened several times. But when I moved to Maine and ended up working in energy conservation and solar, I loved the subject, but I still got bored in a couple of years. So it finally occurred to me that it might not be the subject matter because I love that subject matter. And I thought, well, maybe it has something to do with me not fitting what I'm doing. <clears throat> and at about that time, I, I was a member of a boat club of which Buckminster Fuller was also a member. So I called on him to give me some advice and uh, he helped a lot. For people who don't know who he is, who is he? Well, he is one of the greatest architects of all time. He invented the geodesic dome, that building at Epcot Center, that great big round building, spherical building. He did that, but he was also an incredible pioneer in many, many, many areas. And he owned an island in Penobscot Bay. So I was fortunate enough to be at a place where he was often physically there. And I used that opportunity to turn him into my mentor 
we didn't know the word coach then, but that's really what he was. So how did he help you? What did he teach you? That I would have to design what I was going to do, that it wasn't a matter of just looking at this or that, but I had to do a lot of research and start thinking in completely new ways. There really was no methodology for picking a career you loved, and career counseling was as it is now, pretty much old-fashioned and uh, uh, you know, not all that helpful in picking what you're going to do. <clears throat> so he just led me <clears throat> to look at all the areas that I found important. And I, I uh, you know, we talked about a lot of things. It, it, it was complicated, but we talked a lot about people's natural talents. We talked about uh, how somebody could design a career and so forth. I'll talk a little bit about that when I'm talking about what we do. It's probably easier to do it then, but all of this really came from some initial conversations that just were a bit of a foundation, and then I took it from there. So I want to learn more about you before we get to how you help other people. What did you learn about yourself that you hadn't really realized? One thing and uh, was that I wasn't doing anything that had a real sense of purpose. <clears throat> I wanted to do something that made a big difference in a lot of people's lives, and I just didn't see any way to do it. And then when I had my natural talents tested, I realized that I'm not really analytical, that my ability is to think very fast and get to the heart of the matter. So I kind of think like a, a little bit like Sherlock Holmes, where mm. I'll just see connections between things. He really wasn't analytical, as most people think. He would see connections between things, and that's what I was good at. And what I realized was that in all the jobs I had, I had solved all the problems that I was good at solving, and I was just left with typical management problems that I wasn't very interested in, and I wasn't necessarily very good at doing. So I started paying attention and observing myself. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing of all, is I learned how to pay attention to myself. So that's like whatever it's called, the Christmas Carol with Scrooge and so forth, right? Oh, Everybody yes. knows that. Right. Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas past, takes Scrooge to look at his his life as it was. And suddenly he realized, I'm just a nasty old miser. And I think people don't look at themselves broadly and with a sort of observing and paying attention to things in new ways. But I started doing that. And I realized that to have something that fit would involve not just using my talents fully, but also doing something that, uh, you, you know, a lot of essential facets of a perfect fit career. And so that was natural talents, um, my aptitudes, personality, my temperament, my values, and, you know, the things I was committed to, like making a difference, and passions and habits and lifestyle and workplace needs and things like that. So instead of just looking at one thing and going after that, 
I started assessing all these things about myself and started making definite decisions about some of them. You know, there would there would be things I would like to do. Wouldn't it be nice to be a charter boat captain mm. in the Caribbean until this year? Anyway. Right, right. Um, but that's just a fantasy. That's I probably wouldn't even be very good at it. So that's what I was doing, was looking for where is that elegant match between myself and the working world. And you found it. I did. Well, I had to design it. There really wasn't anything that I thought of as being exceptionally good at helping people pick careers. And that's what I committed to. That's what I made a promise to Bucky that I would do. And uh, I did, and I, I'm still doing it. I mean, we're still learning now, now that neuroscience has taught us so much about human behavior and the brain. It's even more exciting than it was before to uh, take a look at and consider what would be a great fit. How long has it been now that you've had the, the Institute? Well, uh, if you can subtract, it was started in 1981 in Rockport, Maine. And that's why it's called the Rockport Institute, but you're not in Maine anymore, are you? No, we started, I wanted to have a name that everybody would uh, uh, sort of naturally feel had sort of a heart and depth and maybe a little ivy on the walls. I was thinking of calling it Harvard College, but the that's name was already, already taken. taken. Funny. Uh, and I lived in Rockport. I lived right overlooking the harbor. So you had a beautiful location. You just didn't have a beautiful job. Exactly. So can you walk us through some of the steps that you take when you get a new client who's miserable, hates the work they do, and wants to find their their dream job? Is that what you're helping them to find, their dream job? Well, maybe. I mean, I think that's a little too... Uh, uh, much seeking absolute perfection. I mean, there's always going to be something about what you do that may not be exactly perfect, but you want to get it to get to be as close as possible. So sometimes for some people, they will, they're able to reach that ideal perfect career. Uh, but there are always things about something or other that, you know, that might not be perfect. So you're just getting as close as possible by building all those different elements into it. And what we do and what the, the, the heart of my book, The Pathfinder, is about is career design. And that's a field, I, I guess it's fair to say I invented it. And I was the first person to use the term career coaching. In fact, we were one of the very few places in the world that use the word coaching for anything other than sports. So what we do is we start out with a blank canvas and the process is a little bit like, I guess, like a detective show. So uh, what we do is it's, it's kind of, you know, those movies where there's two cops, there's the young neophyte and then there's the grouchy older one. Um, and what they do is they go to the scene of the crime and start looking for clues. So that's the most important thing is is to look for clues. And, and that takes a lot of self-observation. And it, it may take a process that uh, might be very hard for one to do themselves. 
but they're clues about all those areas that I was mentioning before, everything from talents to values. And you have to take a deep look at those things. That's hard for some people to do, to scratch below the surface like that. Well, it is, but there are, there are plenty of ways that people can do that. Obviously, they can, you know, buy a copy of the Pathfinder on Amazon, or they can work with us, or they can, you know, they can find ways to do it on their own. But you have to look at things with a little bit more clarity and depth than people usually do. So just something like your values, what's important to you? And the values and rewards are very much linked. You know, you want to be getting as rewards in your work the things that you really value. Uh, for example, I am not very good at taking criticism. I never have been. I've always been much better at, you know, like a golden retriever, getting a pat on the head and a dog biscuit for what I do. So that was really important to me. And once I recognized that 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 that, that was the case, then I built that in and I started, you know, that was a good clue. And the things that I am naturally really good at doing are, are, are good clues. But even at looking something like your, your values, most of the values exercises ask you, you know, they're just too general. And people's values end up a little bit like, you know, the Boy Scout, I'll be loyal, trustworthy, and all, all these kind of beautiful things, but not necessarily the values you really live from, from day to day. So I think in anything you do in choosing your work, you've got to really get to the heart of the matter. What is so important to you that you just can't do without it? Do you think that a lot of people in their job situations, it's easier for them to pick out the things that they don't like? It's always easier to pick out what you don't like, but those things make just as good clues as the things you do like. If you hate working indoors, well then, hmm, let's see, what else is there? Um, move to Maine and get a job logging or something. I don't know. There, there are many ways to solve that, but, uh, uh, you, you know, any clue is useful and worthwhile. Some of them are really golden, though. Some of them, like using your natural talents, are really the thing that you have to offer the world. And the problem is that people are so enormously adaptable that we can get away with doing almost anything reasonably successfully. There are plenty of surgeons around who don't have any natural talent for thinking or visualizing in 3D. To me, that's a really scary idea, that's right. but it isn't necessary. Uh, but I know, I know a lot of surgeons, and I've always been very interested in them as a specialty because the ones that fit really, really well, when all the pieces fit together, are just absolutely brilliant. And they're the ones that are doing all the, I hate to say it, but cutting edge work in the field. Um, and a lot of them are just okay. The problem with being just okay is that you're always going to know you're just okay. 
So it's just probably not going to be very fulfilling. And I think there are people that don't notice it. Maybe they're just in it for the money or the prestige or something. But if you're really paying attention, it's pretty clear that, uh, uh, you know, if you're not fantastic at something, maybe you should do something else. But back to the question you asked. I have so, to interject something. Okay, please. I've been around a lot of surgeons as I was an x-ray tech who went into the OR to do x-rays. And as a TV reporter, I got to go into the OR a lot. And the, the main trait that I observed is that surgeons have to have a really good sense of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to have a ton of self-confidence. Absolutely. Well, that's one thing. But then what somebody will do is say, well, then therefore I should be a surgeon. So that's just one piece of the puzzle. There are other ones, too, which they have to have certain problem solving abilities and they have to have, uh, you know, surgeon's hands, hands like a really fine pianist in order to be good at it. Plus, there are some other things like the rate of idea flow. Some people's minds are just going a million miles an hour. And some, you know, so that would be a modern artist that's painting really quickly or a cartoonist. Somebody with a slower rate of idea flow in art might be an engraver or they would do something that was more concentrated. And uh, for anybody that's ever seen MASH, the, the surgeon in that, Hawkeye, has really high idea flow And I never noticed him paying any attention to his patients at all. He was basically cracking jokes the whole time. So that's a trait that's probably not that good for for surgeons to have because the half-hour operation may turn into a four-hour operation. And your mind is all over the place instead of just concentrating on what you're doing. So that's just one piece. But there are a bunch of other ones that you want to have all those fit together in whatever it is you're doing. And that's what you help people do. They have a a whole variety of tests that they take and you dig really deep. Yeah, but mostly it's mostly not tests. The things that we test are timed measures of natural talents, because the two most basic things about any biological organism is that they're, you know, they're kind of designed for something specific. So a lion is perfect out on the plains of the Serengeti. They have everything they need. Claws, teeth, nasty attitude, <laughs> uh, natural built-in skills. And uh, a squirrel has a completely different set of talents. Uh, you know, and they're, they're both really good at what they do. But if you put the squirrel in the lion's job, imagine it charging across the plains of Serengeti uh, after a herd of wildebeest. It just doesn't fit. And that's true of everything in nature except for us. We're the adaptable ones, and that's both something that's made us, uh, you know, a dominating force on the planet and also what gets us into trouble because we can do things that don't fit super well. And which make us miserable. Yeah, absolutely. And then that causes stress. What are some of the telltale signs that a person might miss that indicate that the job is not a good fit? Well, if you don't like going to work, that's a pretty good start. 
And if you come home burned out at the end of the day, that also says a lot. So you can be you can be exhausted because you just ran a marathon and that's, you know, that's good exhaustion. That's expected and uh, impossible to not feel and it's perfectly normal. But coming home exhausted after a day of work uh, is usually stress related. Uh, or you've been using all your energy doing something that isn't that great of a fit. So it's just kind of a, you know, a energy mismatch. But if you're, you know, I mean, it might be, if you just, if you're in the right career, but the wrong job, then mainly you really like what you're doing, but you don't like the company or the boss or the environment or something or other. But if the actual day-to-day and minute-to-minute work that you're doing isn't something that you're really engaged in and fulfilled by, you're in the wrong career. Well, it's interesting because my situation in the last, I call it real job that I had, um, I loved the job. I was very fulfilled in the job, but there was a, a change in leadership and it was not a good fit and it went from a job i loved to a job i hated sent me to a therapist um and um when i finally made the decision to leave i would come home every night and just collapse into a heap of tears Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it was astonishing to me how that could change it was a real eye-opener how the environment can change how you feel about what you do even if you love what you do there can be factors that people would never think of. It may be that you're in an environment that's, you know, too quiet or too noisy or, or, or whatever. I was talking with somebody the other day who was a pretty private person, likes people, likes being in contact with people, but doesn't want to feel like they're in a bullpen. And their company went to the latest, uh, San Francisco, way of running an office where it's just, you know, a great big, huge table. Nobody has their own space. I really don't understand why they do that, but it's very hip to do that right now. But it changed the whole thing for this person because suddenly they're just in the middle of this noisy crowd at work and that that wrecked the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to think diagnostically looking at your own traits how well what you're doing matches your traits and recognize specifics that aren't a good fit. So if a person is feeling these negative feelings, then before they pick up the phone to call you or go buy your book, some steps that they could take are what you're just saying to just take a deep breath and take a close look. Well, I think, I I think that we're the way that a lot of people take a good look. I mean, several hundred thousand people have bought the Pathfinder, and that's that's an inexpensive way of looking at these things. So I think it does take a guide to help people do that well, or at least to help most people do that well, because you're just not going to think about most of the things that might make a difference. I mean, obviously, if you were going to learn how to fly an airplane, there would be plenty of things to learn. You you wouldn't just jump in and take off. So uh, I think that the the most important thing really is to 
look and see whether you're willing to put up with your life being like this or being or having the level of stress that you have because of work or whatever it is. And, you know, you have to make a choice. First of all, am I willing to put up with this? What will it be like if I keep doing this in 10 years? And often people are just suffering now and they're not realizing that if they don't do something about it, they're going to be in the same situation in the future unless something miraculous happens. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is you really have to decide to do something about it. You first ask if you're willing and then you just say, if you're not willing, you just say, I'm not going to put up with this crap for the rest of my life. I'm going to get in there and design something that's that I'm going to be happy with. So you people can actually design like you did, and I guess like I did, working from home. Um, is it, can it be, and it's hard work, I'm not saying it isn't hard work, but can you actually design your own career? Do you think it's that doable? Yeah, because... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the only way I know of to do it is to to design it. The typical way people think about changing careers is they may be moving away from what they were doing before. They may be thinking, oh, just get me out of this. Almost anything would be better. But <clears throat> that's not design. That's just, uh, you know, running from the fire. Uh, it's a lot different to say, I'm going to do something that's a great fit and then start asking, well, what's a great fit? And that puts you into a design process. I, w I was I didn't get all the way through our sort of the quick version of our methodology back to the crime scene again. You know, you're looking for clues. You work those clues to the point where you can say, I'm really sure about this one. And it could be as simple as something like, I love to talk with people all day long. Um, that's interesting as an observation, but it really isn't that useful until you can say, yes, this is definitely a part of the, my design. It's absolutely essential. And, you know, the kind of environment that fits me and the other things I'm good at and, the, you know, your person, all of these things are all worth looking at. And uh, working those clues to the point where you can make definite decisions. And that's one of the things that, well, Bucky and I talked about. And it's one of the real essentials of our methodology, my methodology, is that instead of just coming up with a lot of ideas and things that you'd like, uh, what we're doing is we're, we're coaching people to make definite choices about smaller pieces of the puzzle so that they have, yeah, that, and that's something that uh, we've learned a lot about over the last years because of neuroscience. And the simple way to describe all that research is that you're a lot more likely to do something that you're sure about than something you just want to do. I don't think that necessarily holds true with movies or ice cream, but it does with the big things in life. And it, it definitely does with career design. And we taught the first course at Stanford in 
career design, or it was, at least it was based on our methodology. And uh, now they have a fantastic course. Our, ours wasn't very good. We, we don't know how to do instructional design. Now they have a course there that's terrific at actually designing your work. Uh, but anybody can do it. You, it's, you know, if you've ever built anything or you've designed a vacation or you've uh, made something, whether it's clothes or a table or anything, you have, you've been involved in design projects at some time in your life. So this is maybe the most important one. You know, your book that's designed for younger young people, younger people before they get yes. into their career, I, I, I think that that would be critical to have the kind of information that you make available because so many kids, they'll go to college, they don't have a clue what they want to do. They have, don't have a clue really about themselves. And mm -hmm. they'll choose a major because they have to choose a major that is a, a wide-ranging major, covers a lot of things, and never use it sometimes. Often, often not use it. Well, yeah, I, I, in a way, I mean, you know, to really look at the bottom line about that, I really don't think people can, for the most part, know themselves well enough to make a great choice when they're 17 or 18, they don't have any experience out in the real world. So you have to find some ways for them to look at things about themselves where they can see things that fit. Mm -hmm. And that, that doesn't happen, but colleges don't care. If you want to major in Polynesian philosophy, they're happy to have you do it, even though they're I don't even know if there is Polynesian philosophy, really. But, you know, if there is, there's probably two jobs in that field, and you're probably not going to get either of those. So uh, you're not going to get much help from school. And you're also not going to get a lot of help from your fellow students because I think people don't so much think on their own as they just adopt the beliefs of their the tribes that they belong to. I mean, that's easy to see with, uh, you know, in politics, where everybody's kind of cleaving to believing all these same things. It, it's kind of hard to imagine people fitting so perfectly into these categories if they were really thinking independently and individually. So that's important for students to do, is to realize that whatever it is their friends are doing probably isn't going to work. Be well, one thing is that there are only about 30% of people, according to a huge Gallup poll, say they're really engaged in their work. So, you know, you're likely to end up like that. And like then most of your, yeah. And then that's when you want to, you're deep into a career that um, you're fed up with. And that's when you really, you, Usually what happens is you're older, you're deep into yes. this career, you've learned something hopefully about yourself, and that's when maybe most people make the changes. Is that true? Absolutely. Although it's, it's really at different ages. I remember a client years ago who was a, a PhD who was such a leader in his field at that young age that everybody, you know, Yale wanted him, Harvard wanted him, Stanford wanted him. He was just, 
he was just a young Turk in his field. And he, it never occurred to him, even in his postdoc work, that once he got into that field, he would be pretty much limited to investigating a narrow range of things. And when that realization came to him, you know, kind of late, uh, he, he, he said, I can't spend my life just nosing around, you know, in, in, in one narrow field. I have to have some breadth. And uh, that's when he came to us. So it takes whatever time it takes for you to realize that what you're doing might not be a good fit. You might be 16 or you might be 60. 60. Well, I used to daydream about working from home. I could imagine myself sitting at my desk overlooking the bird feeders in the backyard, sipping uh -huh. coffee. And it's essentially what I have now. So my dream came true, but back when I used to daydream about it, for me, I didn't know what that could really be, and mm -hmm. I needed to be working full-time and getting benefits. I had two mm -hmm. young children and you know, family to support. So sometimes things, life, they say, gets in the way, and you can't, you can't make those changes that you want to right then. Yeah, you don't always get what you want, right? But uh, if you are if you are thinking about yourself as an ongoing design project, not just in career, but other things, you know, how can I have more fun? How can I this? How can I that? How can I have closer relationships with such, you know, whatever? All of those things are areas of inquiry. And so even if you're stuck doing something, instead of just completely putting up with it, I think that it makes sense to take career design on as a lifetime project. It's, you know, it's something that you can think about. And as they have with you, opportunities may arise later to do something about it. Or you may find that you're willing to take take a big take a chance do something you know crazy and wild well it, we had, was, it was crazy and wild i remember when i yeah. told my husband he knew i was miserable but the idea of losing a, a decent salary and benefits was scary so sometimes you have to be willing to give something up I, there's a quote that i found from you a passionately lived life does not mean it will be a comfortable life so sometimes really? there are sacrifices you might have to make yeah, I think that you get a choice in life of being either alive or comfortable. <laughs> and comfortable is just kind of, you know, squishing down in the sofa and watching your favorite TV show. Uh, and that's something that we all seek. We, we all want to be comfortable. We all want to be at equilibrium. But to step into anything new in life that you're committed to, you know, opens up a whole hole in front of you that you have to find a way across. Maybe last week you weren't committed to it, and maybe you were just putting uh, Dilbert cartoons up in your, you know, your office. That that was your solution. Dilbert cartoons. Make me laugh. Yeah, really, make me laugh. Or or it's like everybody else is in the same situation that I am in. Um, so it's. You know, if you're committed to living a life that's fulfilling, 
it may be that you have to do something you don't want to do for whatever time, but it isn't necessarily so. Working with all these thousands of clients over the years, what I've realized is that people, you know, once they have a vision and are specific about what they'd like to do, they're often willing to stretch much further than they would be. So you, you have to be willing to be afraid. I remember there were several things that led to the decision, um, but I remember being miserable and mm-hmm. and not sure what I was going to do, thinking I needed to get another job. Um, but then I walked into the room that is now my office at home, and I just had one of those epiphany moments. And uh-huh. I thought, you know, that dream that you've always had, it's do or die now, because you've reached an age in your life that if you don't do it, you might not have the time to do it, to work exactly. for yourself and be a writer. And um, what I don't want is to be on my deathbed, kicking myself mm-hmm. in the butt because I didn't give something a try. That really sounded great. Definitely. So that's what happened. And uh, just as you well, said, you know, it wasn't necessarily comfortable, you know, trying to yeah. make a living when you're starting from the ground up. But at, at first, it's not the epiphany that does it. It's making a promise to yourself that whatever you realized in the epiphany is going to be really an important part of your life. So you can have wants and desires and hopes and dreams and epiphanies, but it's really making the choice and, uh, you know, saying, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm going to have it the way I want it. So you'd had the epiphany. And then at some point you had to make a choice. Oh, yes. And I put took steps along the way. No, I didn't just dive off the cliff. I put I learned about what would be like to own your own business. Um, What would I have to do? Um, I was going to be a freelance writer for other people. And my daughter said, Mama, you need a podcast. And I was like, what's a pod? Not a podcast. Sorry. At the time, she said, Mama, you need a blog. And my response was, what's a blog? And so That's something she... down in the woods, right? That <laughs> yeah. You fall in and get your boots wet in yeah. Maine. But, uh, I she... hate those blogs. <laughs> those blogs, yep. We have them all over the place here in Maine. <laughs> but she set me up with a blog, and the initial intent was a place for me to practice my writing and where I could send potential clients to see mm-hmm. my style of writing. Well, I had another career years ago. For more than 20 years, I was a television health reporter, Mm-hmm. And I love that job. I left because I just was hungry to try something different. Um, but anyway, the first blog post I wrote, it was like being a reporter again. And I was hooked because I was, I, I some people have blogs where they just write what's on their mind. I see myself mm-hmm. as a reporter, a health reporter. So I interview people like you. We're not talking about a disease, but... Having being happy in your career is all about health and wellness. Um, but so I get Fabulous. to interview people. I get to write, take all that information I learn and put it into a format that hopefully people can understand. I get to go out and meet people when I want to. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really funny how it evolved into what I consider my passion. And I didn't realize that until I jumped in. 
Yeah. And so you but there were pieces of it. You kind of realized things and mm-hmm. it, it came together in time. And hopefully that will happen with some people. But I think that for most people, if they're not really kind of, uh, you know, kind of not letting it happen, but making it happen, then it might not happen. It's it's scary, but once you decide you're going to do it, it's invigorating, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but but you have to be willing to be more committed than let that win instead of the fear. Because mm-hmm. whenever people are doing something that's really uncomfortable and new, you you you're you come up with all these yeah buts, the reasons why you shouldn't, and the emotions that go with that. And all of those are really just ways the brain has to get you back to equilibrium because that's what it likes. It's mostly about survival, and you've always survived at equilibrium. So the horse wants to go up the same path because it knows that path isn't dangerous, and it will avoid trying something new if it has a path that works. And that's how our brains are set up. So, you know, you really have to be willing to have fear not be something to be afraid of. Right. Well, so I I did my subtraction. So it was 36 years ago that you started the business. Good mathematical ability. Maybe you should think about that in the future. Uh, Well, it's a big thrill to be able to add and subtract in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't do that. Anyway, I want to know you had expectations did things turn out the way you hoped they would, you expected they would for you? Are you happy? I'm happy, but they didn't turn out the way I expected them to because I wanted to have a much bigger influence on how people pick careers in college and so forth. And uh, I made three promises to Bucky. One, I'd develop you know, tools and methodology Two, I'd make it well-known around the country, and that's why I wrote The Pathfinder. And three, that it, it, it would kind of be, you know, the, the, the very ground for people, that they would all know that, oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to sit down and design my future. So I've pretty much failed at that. 400,000 books and, you know, a few thousand clients is just scratching the surface. So in that... Uh, I didn't, but I've been happy and I've done a whole lot of things and I created career coaching and career design. So I've done most of it, but I think there's a lot to be done in the future. And there are a lot of things that the colleges should be thinking about. Well, you still have more work to do, Mm -hmm. obviously. I know you, you changed. I know one person whose life you changed. She works with me. Oh. She she um, helps me with all the editorial stuff. Jen, she's the oh, one wow. who, Great. who told me about you. She found your book. She read mm-hmm. it, and you changed her life. She changed her career uh, because you helped her get in touch with what her gifts were. And if it weren't for you, she wouldn't be helping me. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well... Any uh, last piece of advice that you want to give before we say goodbye, or do you want to tell people where they can find you and your books? Well, how about if I do both? So my piece of advice is live a life that, you know, you're going to be, as you said, 
happy with and satisfied with when you're looking from the end of your life back over the things that you've done. Live a fulfilling life. Do anything you have to do to make that happen. And uh, well, we are at www.rockport, like the shoes or the town, www.rockportinstitute, all one word, dot com. And of my two books, the one that I think is the best one is called The Pathfinder, How to Choose or Change Your Career for a Lifetime of Satisfaction and Success. And they can order it right on your website. Oh, no, we don't. We're not booksellers. It's, Amazon. it's the top seller. It's usually always in out of what, 15 million books they carry or whatever. It's always in the top few thousand. So, so how does that make you feel, Golden Retriever? Yeah, really good. Well, when I when I wrote it, I the whole time I I thought I couldn't write, and the whole time I was writing it, I just did it because I made a promise, and I thought Simon and Schuster's going to want all the money back. Every day I thought that, but then it turned into a top ten bestseller just for a week. But hmm. I didn't expect that. I thought they'd want all their money back. Well, good for you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Hopefully, uh, what you've had to say will start more than one person on the path to a new career. And I'm glad you said you weren't entirely happy, but I think you must be fulfilled. Oh, I'm happy. I'm really happy. There were just things I didn't, uh, you know, there's one goal that didn't happen. I'm delighted. I'm happy. I'm, I'm satisfied. Good, good. You're an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I've been talking with Nicholas Lohr, whose passion to help people look deep inside themselves to discover what they really were meant to do. Nick is the founder of Rockport Institute and the author of the best-selling book, The Pathfinder, that's changed many people's lives. I'm Diane Atwood, and you've been listening to the Catching Health podcast. You can listen to more episodes, and you can read the Catching Health blog at catchinghealth.com. You'll also find the Catching Health podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you listen on any of those sites, please be sure to subscribe and rate and review Catching Health with Diane Atwood. You would be doing me a huge favor. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful day.